As I was sitting up here just now, I uh, recognize a number of new faces in our congregation this morning. Uh, Maybe you were here last week, but faces that I don't recognize. I just want to once again extend a welcome to you if you're new with us here at Redeeming Grace. I trust you will be encouraged in the Lord this morning. Uh, Let us know how we can serve you. I'd love to meet you at the the door. Uh, But most most of all, we hope that you are encouraged in the Lord Jesus and the strength and and faith of our God this morning. Uh, Guests, we're going to do this morning the same thing we do each and every Sunday here at Redeeming Grace. I am going to open up God's Word from Matthew, which is our current series. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew together. I'm going to explain the meaning of a particular text, and then I'm going to apply it to our lives. And this is what we do weekend and week out here at Redeeming Grace Church. Now, friends, if you grew up attending an evangelical church, I am sure that you grew up singing many of the same Christian songs that I did. Who can forget great hymns of the faith like, I may never march in the infantry? Who's the king of the jungle? And I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Perhaps the most well-known Christian kid songs are two about Jesus' love for children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And of course, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. One of my favorite memories from my daughter Hadley's youngest life, she's here now as a nine-year-old among us, Uh, but when she was just one and a half or two, uh, she was sitting in her high chair, and she was singing to us a medley of, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty with the actions, and then she went right into Jesus loves me. And when she got to that section in Jesus loves me where where she says, uh, they are weak, but he is strong, she paused and you could just see the wheels were turning in her little brain because she had just sung, my God is so big, so strong. And now she was singing that Jesus is strong. And she said, Jesus is strong? And I said, yes, baby, Jesus is strong. Jesus is strong because Jesus is God. And it was just a wonderful, precious moment to teach even a, a little one and a half, two-year-old toddler, a little theology, and then she just picked right back up without missing a beat and launched right back into the rest of the song. It was amazing. Friends, there's no question that at least in part, these songs about Jesus's love for children are inspired in part by our text this morning, Matthew 19, 13 to 15, in which Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Friends, I'm a a tad nervous this morning that some of us might discount a text like this one since the focus is largely on children. Surely it can't be all that important. Well, it's important enough that all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this incident in Jesus's ministry that we're going to look at today with pretty much the same amount of detail. Apparently, the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp just how important the children are to Jesus, and therefore how important they must be to us as his church. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 19? It's on page 824. If you need a Bible this morning, there's a a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Grab that Bible, pick it up, turn it to page 824. That's where we're going to be this morning. 
Friends, we've now reached a point in Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry, which Jesus has transitioned from Galilee in the north uh, of Palestine, is now ministering in Judea in the south, as he gets closer and closer to his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection in Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce in response to the Pharisees' attempt to trap Jesus about a question regarding divorce. And on the heels of that teaching, Matthew now presents us an an episode in which Jesus interacts with those whom so often catch the flack from the fallout of a broken marriage. He shows us Jesus' great love for children. Let's read this short passage together, starting in verse 13 of Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, our last two texts in Matthew have required the sermons to have a good bit of nuance as we've unpacked uh, what it means to forgive those who've wronged us and what Jesus teaches about divorce. This text, it's not nuanced at all. It's easily understood and applied. But friends, again, I pray that uh, the simplicity of this passage wouldn't mute for you how important our topic is this morning for Christian faithfulness. Please don't tune out the sermon as if this text isn't for you. It's for you actually whether you're a Christian or not because of the way that Jesus applies it here at the end. Jesus certainly has a point to make about the value of children, but he also has a broader point to make, doesn't he, about the attitude, the, the disposition necessary to belong to his kingdom. Each one of us should look to the humility, to the dependence of a child to experience the saving reign of Christ in his kingdom. Shockingly, Jesus says the kingdom doesn't belong to the powerful and to the self-assertive, but to the humble, to the dependent. Friends, each week I I give you a main idea of the text that shapes the, the content and the intent of the sermon. You'll never guess what the main idea of Matthew 19, 13 to 15 is. Here it is. I worked a long time on it. Let the little children come to Jesus and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes the Bible just gives you the main idea in a verse, and that is in verse uh, 14 there. Let the children come to Jesus Do not hold them back. Don't hinder them. Do whatever you can to remove the obstacles for the children to get to Jesus. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I want us to look at two aspects of this text this morning, two points. Number one, children highlight the king's heart. Children highlight the king's heart. Number two, children embody the kingdom's priority. Beloved, I pray this morning that God would use his word among us to remind us just how much Jesus loves the little children and that in turn, God's spirit would do a humbling work among us as we look to Jesus by faith. Number one, children highlight the king's heart. 
You know, one of the things that we've seen over and over again in Matthew is how slow the disciples are sometimes to grasp what really matters to Jesus, what really matters in his, in his kingdom. So if you remember from the, the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus had already begun to teach the disciples about his love for kids. And the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest among them in the kingdom of heaven. And what did Jesus do? He went and he, he got a little child and he set it in front of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, for Jesus, children weren't the forgotten ones at the fringe of his kingdom. No, they occupied a central place in his thinking. So much so that he repeatedly tells us adults to become like children in our approach to God. But the disciples seem to trail far behind their master in this regard. So verse 13 tells us that while Jesus was teaching, children were brought to him, presumably by their parents, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Friends, it wasn't uncommon in ancient Israel for Jewish parents to seek out their rabbi and ask for a prayer of blessing over their children. And yet, even, even so, in, in ancient Israel, children had no inherent standing socially. Greeks and Romans in the first century had a shockingly low view of kids. Abortion was frequent. Infanticide was even more common. There were just too many mouths to feed in the Roman Empire. Offspring were good to work in the fields, but as, as small children, they were often unwanted. They were sometimes left for dead outdoors or literally in trash heaps. The Jews treated their kids better. A child to a Jew was a gift from God, but still, children enjoyed no inherent pride of place. They derived their standing from their relationship to adult males, as did the women of ancient Israel, by the way. Friends, there was no Disney. There was no summer camps for kids. There were no youth sports leagues. As unique persons, little kids were better off seen, but not heard. And so with that cultural background, perhaps you can better understand the disciples' reaction when these parents asked for Jesus to bless their children. The culture had trained them to believe that this, this business of bringing kids to a man like Jesus was entirely inappropriate. And so when these parents kind of worked their way to the front of the crowd to solicit Jesus' attention, what did the disciples do? Verse 13 says that they rebuked those parents. You know, no, no doubt they saw themselves as the guardians of Jesus' limited time and his limited ministry capacity. After all, he was a, a big deal, Right? Great crowds were flocking to, to hear his teaching, to see his mighty works. I mean, this guy is the one who goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and, and wins. Surely Jesus has no margin in his schedule for snotty-nosed kids. He's got more important strategic ministry to attend to, right, than to pray for a child. But crying out loud, why did these parents not know better? I mean, you can kind of imagine the exchange, right? Like, what are you doing? Can't you see the master's busy? He doesn't have time for your kids. I mean, you should have gotten a babysitter. You should have taken them to daycare. What are you thinking? Okay, please see yourself to the back and please shush your kids while you're back there. Given what we know about that culture, maybe the parents even expected this type of response from, Christ, from, from the disciples. And so no doubt when the words came out of Jesus' mouth, that followed, it must have shocked everybody. 
Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The disciples had rebuked the parents and turned the kids away from Jesus. Jesus rebuked the disciples and welcomed the kids into his arms. The corresponding account of this incident, friends, in Mark 10, tells us that Jesus was indignant at the disciples' actions. It's the only time in all of the Gospels that the Gospel authors use this word about Jesus. He was indignant. Jesus had a uniquely intense, righteous indignation for those who would turn little ones away from him. The disciples saw the children as little nuisances, as little time suckers, as little nobodies. Jesus saw them for who they really are, little image bearers of the Almighty, reflections of God himself, worthy of love and care and spiritual attention. The disciples evidently saw the kids as a burden. Jesus saw them as an example for for us all to learn from. The disciples overlooked them. Jesus welcomed them, and he blessed them, even as he still does today. You know, I think it's, it's been common. We see this all the time in modern-day politics that for our politicians to make kissing babies a part of their normal routine. Think about it. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, they want to be seen by the public as compassionate and warm and loving. Kissing babies can help them in the polls. But for Jesus, these kids offered him nothing. The society didn't honor them. So Jesus' honoring of the weakest and smallest did nothing to promote his image. So it must indicate something of his genuine love and affection for them. Friends, I want us just to take a few moments and reflect on Jesus' posture toward children throughout his ministry. So all four Gospels reveal that Jesus used a child's lunch to miraculously feed 5,000 people. According to Mark 5, Jesus heals the daughter of a synagogue ruler. Taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Matthew 15 tells of the time that Jesus healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. Matthew 17, Jesus casts a demon out of a, uh, that was tormenting a little boy. In a few weeks, we'll get to Matthew 21 together, where after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he, he heals the blind and the lame in the temple in Jerusalem, and the children cry out in response, Hosanna, praise to the son of David. Friends, Jesus did not reserve his mighty works of power for those whom the world held in esteem. His heart pulsed with compassion for the least of these. The pattern we see in Jesus's life is when a child was in need, Jesus's heart leapt to meet it. Matthew 19 was by far the first time that Jesus had welcomed a child into his arms. His whole life demonstrated his love for the little ones. If you're a child this morning, kids in the room, let me just talk to you for a second. Just listen to me just for a moment. Jesus would move heaven and earth to show you how much he loves you. Your friends may mistreat you. Your mom and dad may disappoint you. 
but Jesus never will. His love for you never wavers. When you come to Jesus, kids, you can trust him that his heart toward you, it's always strong and it's always kind. It's full of tenderness and warmth toward you. He loves you so much that he died on the cross to pay the price for your sin against God if you'll trust in him. Jesus on the cross suffered your punishment from God, not for sin of his own, but for our sins, our disobedience to our parents, right? Our pride and complaining, our greed and lying and anger. On the cross, Jesus took the place of all those who trusted him. So then instead of God punishing you as you deserve, if you trust Jesus, God has dealt your punishment to Christ, and then he forgives and cleanses you and brings you into his family forever. And now, as the risen king and the reigning king, Jesus doesn't just welcome adults into his presence to worship and know and pray to him. He invites young ones like you to learn from him and to pray to God through him and have your sins forgiven through faith in his work for you. Kids, this is a truth that we as adults here at Redeeming Grace want to ring in your ears. Jesus will never turn you away. If you give your life to Christ in simple trust and dependence, he will walk with you for the rest of your life as your king and your God. That is amazing, isn't it? And adults, there's a word that should ring in our ears too, and it's Jesus' words. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For such, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Friends, at the risk of sk- skipping ahead to the second point, it seems that there's, there's a connection here between the type of humility and dependence upon God that Jesus requires for entrance into the kingdom and love and acceptance of kids. In other words, when Jesus sees a disciple hindering a child from coming to him, he sees someone in danger of missing the kingdom of God because of pride. If you're receiving the kingdom of God yourself like a little child, then you're not going to do anything to hinder a little child from coming to Jesus. If you're, but if you're trying to enter the kingdom in some other way, then by receiving it like a child, then you'll probably be a hindrance to children. Jesus is built into the architecture of faith and following him this, this organic connection between your own humility and your ability to lead children to Jesus. If you're not childlike toward God, then most likely children are going to be beneath you and not worthy of your time. The greatest hindrance to effective ministry to our kids is pride. The greatest gift that we can give in ministry to children is humility. Friends, the way that we deal with children is a litmus test of our fellowship with God. That's what Jesus is saying. If we have no care for those who are weakest and most vulnerable among us, if we're too proud to to stoop down and to, to help a child get to Jesus, then friends, something has gone deeply awry in our soul. The disciples thumbed their nose up at the kids, but Jesus stooped down with arms wide open, and so must we. You know, as I prepared the sermon this week, Painful memories flooded my mind of the Sunday mornings before church when I've grown impatient with my kids when they've interrupted me as I've put the final touches on the, on the morning sermon. I can't help you now. 
right? I've got important ministry stuff to do. Go get your mom, right? How easy it is, like the disciples, to see our children as impediments to our schedule rather than as precious image bearers worthy of our time and ministry. So friends, I hope it's clear by now, children ought to be really, really important to the saints of Redeeming Grace Church. Just like they're really, really important to Jesus. Our our kids' spiritual good, their salvation, their discipleship ought to be at the top of our ministry agenda as parents and as a church. We ought to give careful thought as a church to how we can best teach and train and nurture the kids among us. And of course, friends, there is, a, there is a plethora of philosophies out there about how churches best come alongside parents to bring little ones to Jesus. So if you just think about it, some churches have, have a full kids program with a, uh, for a wide spectrum of ages that's entirely separate from the church's uh, worship gathering. Parents kind of drop their kids off at the beginning of the service. They don't see them again to the end. Other churches are kind of like at the opposite end of the spectrum. They want to integrate the young ones into all of the discipleship that their parents are participating in. So kids sit with their parents for the whole service. They listen to the sermon with the adults. They sit with them in classes and so on. Uh, Here at Redeeming Grace, just for your help and edification, we kind of take a mediating approach. Uh, We we encourage our, our parents to utilize our nursery for kids up to three years old so that they might be able to participate uh, in the service without distraction and have their soul refreshed by the word. Uh, For our preschool and and young elementary age students, we we think there's uh, tremendous value in in spiritually even for for them to participate with us in worship. And so that's why we have the kids at the beginning stay in the service with us, to learn the hymns with us, to hear the scripture washing over the congregation, to hear the prayers of the saints, prayers of praise, uh, prayers of confession of our our sin to the Lord, to hear the the congregation confessing our faith in the creeds, uh, to watch their parents and their and their parents' friends genuinely and passionately praising their king. And yet, we recognize there's, a, there's some difficulty, isn't there, in, for a small child to listen to a, let's be honest, 50-minute sermon. And so uh, it's challenging to absorb. And so we have a program for kids up to the third grade called the Gospel Project, where week after week, our volunteers are prayerfully seeking to bring our little ones to Jesus by teaching biblical theology, the, the big story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. We don't ever insist that our parents take their kids to the Gospel Project, of course. But we think there's great value there as well. Our little ones don't stay little, though, do they? Even as they grow into adolescence, we ought to remain equally committed to helping our kids navigate these crucial years of shaping in their teen years, developing within them, instilling a God-centered worldview, a robust understanding of the gospel, since all around them, the voices of the world are giving them anything but that. So our teens meet together as a youth group every other Wednesday to have fun together and to, to learn the word together. We encourage our teens to take advantage of things like summer camps and special events that we have as well. But friends, by far, the most effective way that Redeeming Grace Church can reach our kids for Jesus is to teach and train their parents well through the discipleship of the church so that the parents of RGC are equipped with the scripture and biblical theology and godly wisdom to point our children to Christ and to live godly lives before them. 
You know, regardless of the specific ways that churches seek to carry out Jesus's instruction, the point is undeniable, isn't it? Each one of us should have a mindset to remove whatever might hinder the little ones from coming to Jesus. Friends, I wonder if this morning the Holy Spirit is probing around in your heart a little bit about the type of pride that might be in your heart that reflects the heart that the disciples showed. Maybe this morning you think, man, I just could not fathom, frankly, I just just can't fathom serving in kids' ministry, sorry. There's just more important things for me to do in the church. Maybe if you're honest, some of the consumerism of our culture has kind of seeped into your heart a little bit. Church is where, if you're kind of honest with yourself, church is where you come to be served, not where you come to serve and to lay down your life for the little ones. Maybe kids run by you each and every Sunday morning and you've never given one thought to how you might kneel down and minister to them. Beloved, if that's you this morning, let me encourage you. You know what you need to do this morning? You know how your heart will be changed to reflect the compassion of Christ toward kids? You stare, you stare with the eyes of your heart. You look at the glory of Christ's humility and his tenderness in this passage and others, and you pray, oh, oh Lord Jesus, shape my heart after yours. Repent of your pride, and by faith, you look to the Spirit's help to do an about face in your soul even about children in our midst. Maybe, maybe you're one of our RGC Kids Nursery or Gospel Project volunteers, and, and maybe this morning you say, man, I've, I have lost sight a little bit about what my role is, well, even the, the sense of privilege uh, it is to minister to kids. It seems much more like a chore and a burden right now for me. Well, first of all, I just want to say to all of our RGC Kids volunteers a humongous thank you. Thank you. As an elder and as a parent of little ones, thank you to each one of you who labors in love for our kids here. I know it is a sacrifice. If you're one of our RGC Kids volunteers, let me just remind you, though, every time you stoop down on the nursery floor to play trucks or dolls or dinosaurs, you're not just playing with a toddler you're investing in the future of those who are precious to Jesus. Each time our our, uh, gospel project teacher, each time you take Saturday night to work on the next morning's lesson, you are investing in eternity for those who Jesus welcomes to himself. I pray that you will not become weary in doing good, that this passage might even energize you for the days and months ahead as you minister to our children. Church family, we are all in this together, aren't we? In just a few minutes, as we take the Lord's Supper together, before we take the supper, we are going to rehearse the promises in our church covenant. We're going to remind one another of our commitment as a church and what is one of our commitments that we've made to bring up children under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're a member of this church family, you've committed to do your part to promote the spiritual good of RGC kids. There's, there's so many ways that we can fulfill this responsibility as a church. And so every Sunday night, we come together, not every Sunday night, but every other Sunday night, we come together to pray as a church. And what do we do? What's one of our standing requests? We pray for the salvation and discipleship of our children 
in our youth, just like Bo did this morning. So friends, come to prayer meeting and let your heart pulse for the spiritual good of our kids, just like Jesus does. As I mentioned, I mean, this is the go-to. You expected this, right? In passage on children, you got to know. Our RGC Kids uh, ministry is, is never has a shortage of needs and opportunities. Uh, my guess is, here's just a, a, a hypothesis, I guess. My guess is, given the number of people who attend our Sunday morning gathering, the place on a given Sunday at Redeeming Grace Church, the place where the most unbelievers have the gospel preached to them on a Sunday morning is not in this room but across the way in the gospel project. Friends, what an opportunity we have on a weekly basis to evangelize our kids. Kids' ministry is not for the notably gifted, but for the notably willing. Maybe you might have a heart for, for growing our youth group and, and coming alongside the, the, the youth sponsors and, and ministering to the teens of the church. Friends, what a crucial time of shaping it is for our kids and our youth ministry. Maybe some of you whose kids are grown and out of the house would consider how you might invest in our, in our young parents and assist them as they raise their children. I'm sure you have wisdom and insight and lessons learned to impart to young parents. Maybe those of you without kids would preferably consider how you might bless our families, whether it's through babysitting or appropriate ways to disciple the kids of RGC. And I just want to say as a, as a dad of three little ones, like when a godly brother takes interest in the spiritual good of Cooper or Canaan, when a sister ministers to my daughter, it's not a threat to my parenting. It is not. It's like nitro injected into the parenting engine, right? I would think all of our parents would agree with this, right? We want each other to invest in the lives of our children. You know, I can say something to my kids until I'm blue in the face, and we do, right? We grow blue in the face on a daily basis, it feels like. It may not sink in, but perhaps you might say the same thing to them, and it's because it's coming from you, the one who's taken interest in them, who ask them regularly about how school's going, how their sports league's going, how their hobby is doing, the Lord might use what you say because you have invested in that child to electrify their hearts and bring them from death to life. Maybe you might take this compassion of Jesus for children into the community and become a foster parent for kids who need a home. It's a hard ministry but I guarantee you it's one that elicits a smile from Jesus, the one who said, let the little children come to me. Friends, I pray that RGC, that our church might be the richest soil imaginable for our kids to know, to know Christ, to grow in grace, and that we might do our parts, our part to cultivate and till that soil for them. You know, as 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 straightforward as this passage is, before we move on to the second point, as, as straightforward as this passage is, there are a shocking number of misinterpretations of it. I don't know if you realize that or not. Uh, some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters utilize this text as a case for infant baptism. Um, I don't see anything in the passage about that. Um, other well-meaning Baptistic churches use this passage to make a case for why churches ought to baptize young children who make a profession of faith. And Jesus says not to hinder the children. He said, 
Uh, the, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, we should not restrict who can be baptized since Jesus clearly welcomed even the youngest children to himself. Well, on that point, let me just say a few words. Jesus in the New Testament is clear that the sign of the new covenant, believer's baptism, isn't for all those who make a profession of faith, but for all those who make a credible profession of faith. The waters of baptism are reserved for those who bear, as best we can tell, the evident fruits of repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is able to look at such a person and say, yes, we believe your confession that Jesus is your Lord. As far as we can tell, you bear the marks that God's Spirit has transformed your life. Our church, and frankly, you know, frankly, throughout history, most of what we call credo-baptist churches, those who practice believers' baptism, have recognized that when young children make a profession of faith, it's sometimes difficult to discern attachment to Christ apart from attachment to their parents. Young kids simply haven't had the, the time or opportunity to own their faith and, and demonstrate independent of their parents that they're following King Jesus by faith alone and are committed to him. And so rather than grant corporate affirmation of conversion through baptism to a young child who hasn't had time to develop that, that public, credible profession of faith, churches who, who practice believers' baptisms have chosen to wait until A professing child is able to do that, to credibly, with proven fruit, to show it, confess that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord. It really wasn't until the late 20th century, and especially in American Christianity, that churches have begun to baptize young children. Here at RGC, we try to be be wise, we try to be discerning, appropriately cautious about not baptizing too early so that when we give our corporate affirmation of a child's confession of faith, in Jesus, we can do so with great confidence that as far as we can tell, yes, this is a believer in Jesus. They truly are the Lord's. And so in general, friends, what that means here at Redeeming Grace is that means opening conversations with children and their parents about baptism and church membership in the early teenage years. If you have any questions about that topic, I know it's a little bit of a rabbit trail. It's connected, obviously, to this text. If you have any questions about how to approach this topic of baptism, with your children, how to approach the topic of church membership with your kids. The elders have actually put together a position paper about child baptism, and it involves, it includes an extensive FAQ that's designed to help you as a parent. Uh, if you're not aware of that document, if you don't have that, shoot me an email and I'll, and I'll send it to you this week. That being said, that being said, there might be a temptation, friends, for churches like ours who are de- deliberate in our baptism practices to forget that kids really can repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. They really can be saved. Just curious, how many of you think I was converted as a young child? My hand's up with you on that. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must continue to pray and work energetically toward that end. Let the little little children come to Jesus and do not hinder them. Number two, children embody the kingdom's priority. Again, Jesus's main point isn't fuzzy. Don't hinder children from coming to me. He rebukes the disciples. He welcomes the children. But why? Why does Jesus react so sharply? 
It's not merely because children are precious to him, although it's clear that they are. The reason Jesus gives explicitly in his response to the disciples is explicit. It's clear. Verse 14, but Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such. Here's the reason. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus' point here is the same as it was in chapter 18. There he told those squabbling disciples, truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you turn from your sin and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus' point here is not that the kingdom of heaven belongs to all children, but that it belongs to such like them, to all who turn from their pride and their self-absorption and become like a child in their posture toward God. You know, the Jews of that day were expecting the Messiah King to usher in God's kingdom, but their expectations were warped. They expected the Messiah to rule over an earthly kingdom on, uh, of course, on earth that would release them from the tyranny of Rome. But with the dawning of Jesus and with the dawning of the Messiah's reign, God upended that expectation. He didn't immediately fulfill his, his saving promises by putting Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem. No, as the divine son and Messiah king, Jesus hadn't come to free his people from the dominating power of Rome, but from the tyranny of sin and death. He'd come to rescue us from our pride, from our selfishness, from the the shackles every human heart and condemns us to eternal judgment. This kingdom, this, this reign that saves, that's what God's kingdom is. This reign that saves isn't attained by human achievements. It's not earned by good works. It's received by humble trust upon the one who came to save. That's Jesus' point. The kingdom belongs to those whose disposition toward God is like a child toward his parents. It's one of humble, independent trust. You know, one of the joys that I've had uh, in parenting, unexpectedly actually, is the feeling that floods my heart every time one of my kids instinctively reaches for my hand when they feel threatened. Why does it flood me with happiness when that happens? Maybe it's, you know, in a thick crowd that we're walking through. Maybe we're about to cross a busy street. Uh, typically, that's just Canaan these days. The other two don't think they need me anymore. But, you know, Canaan will still instinctively reach for my hand. I can't help but get a little bit of a lump in my throat when I feel the little guy's hand clasp mine. Why? Because he doesn't have to think about it. He didn't weigh the options. He just trusts me implicitly. He looks to me to take him where he cannot go himself. Those to whom God's kingdom reign belongs have that same posture. You know, in the world's economy, friends, those who would reign do it by grasping power. They rule by self-assertion and achievement. The kingdom of man belongs to those who conquer by their will. Or even in the spiritual realm, they think we get the kingdom through our performance, through our good works. Jesus says you can't ever have the kingdom of God that way. The only way to have the kingdom is to humble yourself like a child and trust in me. To reign with Christ, you first submit to him. You yield your life to to his authority. You receive his grace, his forgiveness through the open hand of childlike faith. You know what Jesus is doing here, friends? 
He's saying in order to have the kingdom of God, in order to be restored to a right relationship with God, you have to recognize who you are. You have to live in the reality of who you are. A, a small child, ha he has no reference point, very little reference point for thinking more highly of himself than he ought. The older the kids get, the more that they think of themselves, of course, but little kids are not self-aware, right? They walk outside in their undies for everyone to see them, right? Uh, maybe your, your kids don't, mine, mine do. Um, they, they'll, they'll parade before guests in a make-believe costume, right? They're, they're blissfully happy to, to be reliant on others to help them, to provide what they need. They're just by nature dependent, and that's the point that Jesus is pressing home. And so in this, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus has brought, Jesus says that his kingdom belongs to those like children, to those who recognize their utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from him. Those who don't rejoice in their sin, but mourn over it. Those whose hunger and thirst is not for what the world can offer them, but for righteousness. Those are the ones whom Jesus promises to fill. Friends, because we know the rest of the story, we know that the way we obey this teaching of Christ is to humble ourselves before God, to repent of our rebellion against him, to rely fully on Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection as our only hope. We stop trying to rescue ourselves. And by faith and repentance, we look to God's rescue through his son, our Lord Jesus. Because guess what? Even Christ the king took this lowly path. He walked the road of utter humility. Jesus, the eternal son, one with the father from all eternity, humbled himself beyond our comprehension. In his incarnation, Jesus condescended to assume our human frailty, to subject, subject himself to this fallen and broken world. Why? So that he might reconcile you and me to God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Jesus was crucified in weakness. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Jesus humbled himself in his life. This humble life that welcomed children to himself was merely the prelude to the humiliation of the cross. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. In his resurrection and ascension, God is the one who has highly exalted his son so that now at the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord alone. The third and final stanza of Jesus loves me. It's not as well known as the, as the first stanza, but it seems appropriate in light of this sermon. Jesus loves me. This I know, as he loved so long ago, taking children on his knee, saying, let them come to me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Friend, if you've never come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sin, if you're still, even this morning, in your sins without any recourse to sit, stand before God on that final day, and be saved, I urge you to stop resisting this morning. 
Stop trying to pridefully attain the redemption that only Jesus can give you. Jesus' arms of welcome are wide open for you today, just like they were for the little children so long ago. But you must first become like them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would do your good work in us this morning. That you would bring us into that childlike faith and posture of humility before you in our daily lives and the way that we approach you and the way that we approach others. Father, in the way that we approach children. Father, for our parents, oh Lord, may you remove hindrances that we've set up to bring in our little kids to Christ whether it's our time, our schedule, our attitude. Father, for us as a church family, even as we talked about this morning, would you increasingly make Redeeming Grace Church a place where the brothers and sisters of this family look to the the youngest, the littlest among us, and welcome them in. Father, to make them understand uh, how much we want them to know Jesus and to work accordingly toward that end. Well, Father, we ask boldly, even as Bo did this morning, for the conversion of our little ones. Oh, Father, may you open their hearts and minds to understand their need for Christ, that they would repent and believe in him. Oh, Father, bless our children's workers. Bless uh, our nursery workers. Father, bless uh, KC, our deacon. May we ask, Father, that uh, we would all be working together to let the little children come to you. Lord, for those of, of us, Father, who've, uh, who may be sitting here under the sound of the preaching of your word, but have never humbled their heart to come to Christ today, we ask, Lord, that you uh, would do even a work of, of, of humbling them even now as they, as they think about the word that was preached, Father, that they would run to Jesus, the, the one who holds open arms for them to come and repent and believe in him. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.